Hello, and welcome to Wavelength by Resonance, a podcast where we aim to bring you the biggest news in tech from the last two weeks and what headlines to watch out for next. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Wavelength by Resonance. Every fortnight we bring you the biggest news in B2B tech and what it will mean going forward. So, for our latest episode, we're bringing in another new guest, more fresh blood. This week we've got Rob. How you doing, Rob? Very well, thank you. Very excited to be here. Yeah, looking forward to chatting through all of this week's uh, this week's news. Of course, we're excited to have you. Now, without any further ado, let's get into our first story of the day. And our first story today is about the chip wars, or semiconductors, if you like more syllables. Uh, and that's basically the US kind of intensifying its trade war against China in regards to semiconductor exports, trying to slow the kind of military advancements that China's making with this kind of technology. So this new rule basically means that chip makers in the US have to get a special license from the Commerce Department in order to export these kind of advanced chips and the equipment to make those chips. And basically what all of the kind of media consensus here is that they're trying to stop Beijing from accessing critical tech that they need for a variety of really important applications like supercomputing, weapons guidance. I've seen it described as a technological cold war through sanctions trying to squeeze the flow of especially high-end semiconductors. Obviously, a lot of advancements going on in that area. This isn't the first time they've done this. We previously covered on the podcast when they started these sanctions and made it more difficult for China to access this critical equipment. Also, when we look back at the reign of President Donald Trump, uh, they also wanted to slow down China's tech growth through targeting Huawei. They stopped it getting the chips it needed in order to dominate 5G worldwide. On the Huawei point, it was fairly transparent that Donald Trump wasn't thinking so much about the effects of mm. of the chips being used for military capabilities in China. I think it was a lot more about stimming someone who he saw as a major competitor to US mm. goods. Whereas now with Biden, I think it does feel like there's more of a geo political angle and mm. Taiwan I think comes yeah. into it in a really interesting way Definitely. as one of the biggest sort of chip manufacturers in the world. I was looking at a story that came out this morning on Bloomberg where essentially I think someone high up in TSMC, the uh, Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company, was basically saying that even if China does invade, that they don't think that TSMC will get destroyed because it is such a big target it's for capture. Asset. Exactly. Mm. It's an asset to Taiwan, obviously. It's mm. an asset to the US because Taiwan has, you know, very good relate a very good relationship with the US. Mm. It's it's interesting that, that they're obviously doing this as you say, in an effort. It's almost like a sort of technological cold war that could potentially, in the worst mm. case scenario, lead to an actual war. There's an argument to be made about maybe making the decision this far down the road rather than later helps prevent some kind of conflict where you're encouraging domestic production both in the US but also in a way in China you're forcing them to build up their own capability as opposed to letting things come to an actual flashpoint in Taiwan. Yeah. And in terms of looking at the broader impact of this, shares in these top Chinese chip makers have lost about $8.6 billion 
uh, on Monday. Uh, and these new US export controls have, like you said, stymied China's plans for technological self-sufficiency. But in terms of looking at how this will affect companies and especially B2B tech going forward, the US can't win this competition just by outpacing China in terms of production. They've also got to look at the other side and how they slow China down either directly or indirectly. So we've seen moves like the CHIPS Act designed to encourage domestic production of chips, but also look at other moves like this one that discourage the sale of US semiconductors to third parties and especially indirect sales through to China. Obviously, we'll see China stepping up domestic production, maybe looking at other sources from different countries. So now we're two years after the US hitting Huawei with these very harsh sanctions. Huawei's stock and revenue dropped quite a lot, and it's kind of lost its leadership position that it had at that point in network equipment, smartphones, telecoms, that kind of stuff. And the founder basically told everyone at the company that their survival's at stake. So that was, at least in an isolated situation, a very successful example of this strategy working. But it remains to be seen if that can be scaled up for an entire chip industry. Personally, I think it's difficult to imagine that China won't find at least a workable solution with the amount of capital and means of production that they have on hand. But this will certainly be a very frustrating setback for them. And while we're on the topic of the US's technology policies, let's get into our second topic, which is the US launching its own AI Bill of Rights. So last year, when we're looking at the background to this, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, or the OSTP for people with less time in their lives, uh, announced that the US needed this kind of Bill of Rights to handle the growth in AI because it's relatively unregulated as of yet. The OSTP's director in this article that he wrote in Wired basically said that the harms from AI, potential and real, disproportionately impact marginalised communities. And so government intervention is needed, or at least guidance, to make sure that people are protected against discriminatory or ineffective AI. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the problem of AI being viewed, I think, as a fix to inherent bias in certain organisations. Yeah, it's augmentation. Exactly. It's, it's definitely a real problem that, in a wider sense, that we look at technology as being a cure, but actually a lot of what technology does, as you said, Dan, is augment. It's humans that create the parameters mm. that yeah. decide how the AI interprets the data. And it's, it's an act like this, the, the Bill of Rights, that sort of at least makes the first steps to making sure that the right parameters are in place. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, AI is often touted as this thing that's kind of separate from humanity, this kind of cold arbitrator of decisions and data. But what AI really is, is human-led, human-designed, just human in many ways. And so we need to employ it responsibly. And a lot of companies are, but this is just making sure that we're keeping on the right track. So on October 4th, the OSTP released uh, a blueprint, is what the White House is calling it, for an AI Bill of Rights. Um, and they've gathered input from companies like Microsoft and Palantir, which some people are going to have interesting positions on, given those companies' interests in AI going forward. Um, also, you know, auditing startups, human rights groups, the general public. And it's come up with five principles. And the OSTP is basically saying that people have a right to control how their data is used, opt out of automated decision making, live free from ineffective or unsafe algorithms, 
to know when AI is making a decision about them, and to not be discriminated against by unfair algorithms. These all sound like really positive principles and mm. ones that I'm sure we can all get behind. However, they do seem a bit blue sky thinking. Mm. And yeah. it's great that, that they're bringing in Microsoft and Palantir, despite some conflicts of interest. Mm. But they are two organisations with the expertise to help the decision makers in the Senate. Um, yeah. I often think, though, with these things that I'm sure if you saw any of the meta um, hearings where they would speak talking to questioning yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, they just seem to not really know a huge amount about what they're talking about. It's very difficult to tie policy to technology in the sense that how can you expect a policymaker of 20 years to have the depth of knowledge about the technology? So I suppose in a way there is the argument to be made that it's important to at least start with principles like this and then try and tie that down to practicalities with companies like Microsoft who have the knowledge to go, okay, if this is what we want to do, here's how we can get as close to that as possible. I think that's the key thing. It's about a direction, and that's definitely what this does, is it provides direction, and you can be pessimistic about these sort of things and say, well, where's the meat of the policy? Mm. But it's at least creating a, a, a path yeah. for, the, for the future. As we've basically covered, these guidelines are non-binding and they don't have any enforcement measures. However, also, the European Union had this landmark privacy regulation that basically forced global tech firms to change how they collect data. And this Bill of Rights doesn't include those kind of provisions. And some leaders in tech have said the other way around, that this blueprint could lead to very strong regulation that kind of crushes innovation. So we kind of see how there are these two sides to the debate in terms of how regulation will look in the US going forward, where a lot of this innovation is coming from, Palo Alto, those kind of places. So in terms of what this means for predictions going forward, we'll see headlines about the US government are going to build the framework to support these principles going forward in order to put it into practice. We think big tech are going to be able to sidestep a lot of these regulations fairly easily, but a lot of other companies are going to look at these provisions and see how they can build a fair and equitable system for everyone. So we'll see how that one looks going forward in the media. When looking at our next topic, we'll see how things are progressing apace in Europe. Our third topic today is the European Commission proposing new rules to make it easier for you to sue AI. Uh, and while that's quite an attention-grabbing headline, I'll just add a couple of caveats. Um, these rules are basically in place to help people harmed by products using AI uh, and also digital devices, things like drones. So it's a bit broader than the headline, but I find the headline very interesting in and of itself. So this is the AI Liability Directive. And what it does is that it would reduce the burden of proof on people suing over these incidents involving AI digital devices. And one of the justice commissioners said that it would make a legal framework fit for the digital age. And it would also include stuff like self-driving cars, voice assistants, search engines. So a lot of stuff that you wouldn't even think about as being in the scope of an act like this. It's very broad and it taps into a lot of existing stories about the safety of things like self-driving cars. Obviously the long-standing trolley problem of, you know, if a self-driving car has to avert a disaster by going one way or the other and both of them involve hitting someone, what does it do? And, you know, a lot of that is very contrived, but it does bring up interesting questions. And so if passed... 
These rules would run alongside the EU's also proposed Artificial Intelligence Act, which, like we were discussing in the previous segment, is a fairly landmark precedent, and it would be the first of its kind to set limits on how and when AI systems can be used. So let's look at what this will mean for B2B tech going forward. Essentially, this is a European Commission piece of regulation. It doesn't apply to the UK at present. And it's hard to imagine the current UK government, with its sort of friendliness to, to big tech, to free innovation, to deregulation, it's hard to see Parliament passing a similar piece of legislation over here. But nevertheless, if there are significant lawsuits in Europe against big tech AI companies using these set of rules, that might set landmark precedent and influence tech and AI companies to change their global policies. So just because this is a European piece of regulation doesn't mean that it will only affect Europe or the EU. So this is a bit of a, a, bit of an addendum to the segment we just had about the US's laws. But it's interesting to see the kind of more regulation heavy, more strict rules enforced by the EU as opposed to the US. Yeah, it seems like globally governments are waking up to the fact that AI is is going to be prevalent throughout industries in the coming decades and, yeah. and that they need to move quickly to to regulate or at least to create a framework for future regulation. Yeah, it's interesting as well in terms of how regulation functions in that they're anticipating technology that hasn't even been put into place yet, that hasn't been developed yet. So we'll see how this gets amended, how this goes through Parliament and let you know what happens next. Let's go for a bit of a fun one now, and that is Tesla presenting a humanoid robot called Optimus. Now, aside from the Transformers rip-off of a name, and I'm actually quite annoyed because it doesn't look anything like Optimus Prime, uh, this story is basically Tesla CEO Elon Musk, you may have heard of him, uh, showcasing this humanoid robot uh, at the AI Day event last Friday. Now, Musk has previously said that a robot business will be worth more than a car business. Uh, and so obviously he's been hoping to expand beyond self-driving cars, which haven't even come into place yet commercially. So interesting that he's already trying to innovate beyond that. And a prototype of this Optimus robot walked on stage and waved to the audience. Yeah, it's um, it's this strange obsession in the robotics world of trying to create a humanoid robot. Yeah. A robot with legs, because us humans have a very strange obsession with wanting to create things that mimic us or are exactly like us. Yeah, exactly. Look like us. It's like no one's seen any science fiction films ever. You don't <laughs> want that. Um, yeah. But it reminded me a lot of um, something that I saw in the news recently and sort of comes up every year, which is the DARPA robotics competition, mm. which is the sort of walking robotics competition okay. where various <laughs> people will enter and try and create a robot that can open doors, climb <laughs> stairs, and they just always end up keeling over and you sort of see a team of robotics engineers <laughs> running over and scooping this thing up and putting it on a putting it on a, a stretcher sort of running it out um but you know i was kind of shocked to even hear that there was an ai day at tesla i didn't even i know that he's been mm. working on sort of Neuralink stuff he's his fingers in many pies he does which he does. you know how many fingers can one man have well that's the thing you can't help but feel that 
with everything in the news about Twitter, with AI Day, with self-driving cars, with space, is, is, is SpaceX, or is that? Yeah, that's him as well. SpaceX. <laughs> you can't help but feel, you know, he is. He does seem to be spreading himself quite thin and making a lot of promises that he may not be able to keep. It's the classic captain of industry thing, especially in some parts of tech where sometimes you're more lauded for the things you say and the promises you make rather than the things you do and the promises you keep. Definitely. Which, you know, nothing against Musk. He's done a lot for the industry, but there are certain ways in which his ideas outstrip our capabilities. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at him as almost a sort of figure of fun because he has mm. managed to create such sort of a place in pop culture almost. Yeah. He's clearly trying to cultivate a position as a as a larger-than-life character. Yeah, transcending and tech. Exactly. Yeah. And, and as you said, that's a conscious choice. Mm. Um, no, definitely. And something that I'd like to get into is that we've spoken about the uh, the utility of a human-shaped robot. And one thing that was involved in this demo was a video of this Optimus robot carrying a box, watering plants, moving metal bars in a factory. And aside from the fact that you presume that it would do those things a lot slower than a purpose-built robot, like, you know, a Boston Dynamics dog or something. Or maybe a person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, in terms of predictions about the types of robots and robotic designs we're going to see going forwards, I wouldn't think we'd see too many human-shaped robots going into mass commercial usage because watering office plants, to me, and forgive me, I'm not too up on our office finances, I don't think that's particularly useful from an ROI standpoint. I don't think you're getting a lot of return on a robot who's watering your orchids. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to buy some office plants first, which already seems like a significant <laughs> Then we're just outcome. down immediately. Yeah, exactly. Um, the most commercially viable ones, you look at drones, Roombas, mm. you know, wheel, wheeled robots or flying robots are much more... The technology exists there mm. already. 100%. Interestingly enough, not that I'm implying that these two things are related, but um, last Thursday, Boston Dynamics and some other big robot companies signed a pledge to not make any robots that can harm humans. So Asimov uh, sleeping very soundly in his grave tonight... But um, yeah, in terms of headlines going forward, we've discussed we need to look at the types of commercial robots that are going to come out going forward. A lot more investment in drones. We've spoken previously on the podcast about pilot drone superhighway project in the UK. That kind of thing we'd expect to see more of. And Musk himself has said that Optimus is nowhere near market ready. He does love to present things that are nowhere near market ready. <laughs> it reminds me of the Tesla Cybertruck. Um, but yeah, I think... It's, it provokes an interesting conversation about the role that uh, that robots can play in the future and perhaps at least encourage further innovation in, in the industry because, you know, as you said, drone superhighways, drone deliveries, these are all real feasible things that we'll see in our lifetime. So Yeah, no, of course. So keep an eye on that one going forward. And we're going to try a new segment at the end here, folks, and that's a roundup of previous topics we've covered and where they're at today because there's been a lot of movement and I'm proud to say a lot of our predictions have come true. So, going first, Doreen Bogdan Martin has won the UN's ITU election. As expected, as we indicated last week, she's their first female general secretary and this is great news for the future of an open, interoperable internet. Next up, there's the UK's online safety bill, which has had a real positive push mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks, uh, particularly in part 
due to the inquest into the tragic death of Molly Russell, which, though a tragedy, has at least seen some real positive moves to protect people like Molly. So... Mm. This doesn't happen again. Liz Truss's government have really shown themselves to be open to breaking new regulatory ground. So it's very easy to see this bill progressing quickly through Parliament. And of course, next, we briefly spoke about it already on the podcast, is that Elon Musk Twitter deal is back on. The man loves drama. He can't get enough of it. The unhappy marriage continues. There's constant bickering on both sides. Mm. It never really feels like you know which way it's going to go. But the current thing is that apparently he is about to buy Twitter. But tune in in two weeks' time, and I'm sure he'll have decided to buy MySpace instead. (laughs) And as we said last time, the fact that he's got $10 billion on the line probably doesn't hurt either. Mm. The next thing is Arm and SoftBank being in a bit of trouble. SoftBank had promised initially to double Arm's UK workforce in 2016, but now it's laid off almost 40% of its UK employees. And the final of our little mini topics is that Dali 2, we've previously discussed in the concept of Getty Images banning AI art, uh, is now open to the public. Although some commentators are saying it's a bit like shutting the stable door after the horses have bolted. A lot of the people who would have used it when it was public uh, are now using Midjourney and Stable Diffusion, which have been open for a little while. Thank you for joining us today, everyone. It's been wonderful to have you, and we hope to see you again in two weeks. Thanks for coming on, Rob. It's been a real pleasure. It's been lovely to talk through all of the week's news, catch up, and I can't wait to be on again soon. We can't wait to have you back. All right, guys, have a good fortnight, and we'll see you again very soon. Goodbye. That was Wavelength by Resonance. Thank you for tuning in, and please join us next time.